This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Merge by For Love Not Lisa. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay. Uh-huh. We are joined by a familiar voice. I don't say face because it's not television or some sort of webcast. We are all we're old school here. We're doing radio. We're doing old-timey old uh, <laughs> radio. Please don't do your old-timey radio voice. I won't. Joining us for, I believe, is it the third time? Maybe? Possibly? I think so. Let's, let's see. Triple Fast Action, <laughs> Magna Pop. And yes, now for the third time. Alcohol Funny Car. Oh. Oh, damn, damn. you, sir. You have schooled me. For the fourth time, Mr. Chip Midnight. Chip, how are you this evening? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Well, I'm fantastic. I don't know why you're undecided. Hemming and hawing. Well, <laughs> do you have other things you'd rather be doing this, right now, Tim? This weather's messing with me. It's, it's it's 75 degrees one day. The next day you wake up and you got frost on your car. I don't know what's going on. The end of the world. I hear I you, know. man. I don't know. It's freaking me out, too. So for those of you uh, unfamiliar with Chip, Chip is our intrepid reporter. He goes out in the field, he gets us interviews, and he brings them back. He interviewed Ruthie Morris from Magna Pop and Ben London from Alcohol Funny Car and has given us many a good suggestion to review the Triple Fast Action and tonight's selection, the album Merge from 1993, by For Love Not Lisa. And along with the suggestion of For Love Not Lisa, Chip has brought along an interview he did with Miles, the guitarist from For Love Not Lisa. So we'll be playing snippets of that throughout the show. Jay, were you familiar with For Love Not Lisa? The name was familiar, but I I, I thought they were like kind of like a Love and Rockets type band or something. I don't know why, but that name Because of the word love? Maybe, I don't know. I was expecting like some um, kind of like a gothy kind of 80s thing. In the um, realm of mistaken um, ideas about this band, I thought they were from Chicago. So that's that's that was my error on this band. <laughs> we are clearly dipshits. Yes. So hopefully uh, Chip will set us straight with when he drops some knowledge on us. Because uh, we're going to do the history of the band. History of the band. Now, Chip, you can help me out here. Yep. Because it doesn't really say what year this band was formed. It just says in the early 90s. Do you have any idea when when For Love Not Lisa formed in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma? No, I don't. I'm not sure of the uh, exact time. No. Okay, we're going to say... Early 90s. Early 90s sounds good. we got to say prior to 92 because that's their first eight-song EP came out on Indivision in uh, 1992. So... Obviously, the band had to form before it could release something. So we're going to say 91. How about that for the hell of it? Sounds good. Let's go with it. Vocalist Mike Lewis, guitarist Mike Miles, bassist Clint McBay, and drummer Aaron Preston. They relocated to the sunny uh, locale of Los Angeles and released the album Merge on East West Records, which I believe is a subsidiary of either electric electra or atlantic or some larger label that's no longer wasn't in existence AC, wasn't acdc on that label or something east west yeah i don't know like Chip? later later on like in the 90s do you have any information on that that i do not you'd think okay. i would but i don't from this album the track slip slide melting was on the crow soundtrack soundtrack ACDC was was on East West Records, and Britney Fox. Come and on, I didn't Chip. know that. Wow, I'm know. slipping. And Baton Rouge. I don't know who that band is. Chip knows who that, I'm talking that, about. I, that, that'll be part of Jay and I's first uh, hair metal podcast. Lipstick and Kicks. Okay, I could go on all day here. All right. In 1995, <laughs> the album Information Super Driveway released on East West. Uh, the band separated but returned for the 1999 
release The Lost Elephant, which was released on Tooth and Nail. Between 95 and 99, uh, Lewis went on to form the band Puller. Uh, the Lost Elephant is primarily, it's not all new material. It's some older material and some, it's not what I would say is a cohesive album. Chip, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, actually, I'm not positive, but I think a lot of the stuff on Lost Elephant is from that first EP that they put out. Okay. Tell us about, you have you had some other information that I did not have. Um, can you fill in some of the blanks with this band? Yep, um, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so I believe that Clint McVeigh joined the band for the second record. I think okay. they moved out. It was, it was Miles and Mike. So Mike Miles, guitar player, goes by Miles. I'm assuming because there were two mics in the band and that just made it easier. Probably. So Mike and Miles moved out to L.A. They took a couple guys from Oklahoma with them. Those guys didn't last too long from, from what I understand. And uh, they picked up uh, Aaron Preston. I, I guess Aaron Preston was a friend of theirs from Oklahoma that ended up coming out to L.A. to replace maybe one of the guys that didn't make it. And then for the uh, Merge album, Doug Carrion was a uh, an assistant producer, I believe, on Merge. Um, he had some production credits, and they ended up asking him to join the band after they got rid of the bass player during the recording from, from what I understand. I'm not sure if that, I've got the whole story correct, but Doug Carrion, who had played in Dag Nasty and I think The Descendants, plays at least on some of Merge, if not all of Merge, and was in the touring band after that record came out. And then he eventually left, and Clint McVeigh, a friend of theirs, I believe, from Oklahoma, joined the band. And then Miles was only in Puller for one album, and then he went on to form another band, right? Yeah, so when the band broke up, Mike started Puller, and Miles put out a solo record called uh, under the name Sequoia, and then he joined a band called the Echo Division that I believe has two records two records out i think i got them off of e-music so they're available there they used to be at least a couple years ago when i got them off there and then yeah and then miles joined mike and puller for uh the album called closer than you think which came out in 98 and miles toured the puller for that record as well i want to mention that if you liked our history of the band section. You can sponsor it. Uh, you can send us an email, digmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Come sponsor, and uh, maybe we'll swap sponsorships for you, or you can do us the uh, service of paying for a sponsorship and help us pay our bills. If you don't want to sponsor us, please uh, visit our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. Buy a T-shirt and make a donation. Help us uh, keep this thing rolling along into the uh, end of the Mayan calendar so that uh, we can have a nice uh, collection of things that will ex- explode when everything, when the world explodes on 2012. 12, 12, 12. Or 12, 21, 12, is it? Yes, 12, 21, 12. So. Beyond that, let's get to Facebook feedback. We didn't have any for this album. <laughs> Actually, we did have Facebook <laughs> feedback. Dimitri, uh, Dimitri asked, uh, or not asked, he said, I've never heard of this band. That was our only Facebook feedback for this album. <laughs> so moving right along from there, let's get into the album Merge from For Love, Not Lisa. So Jay and I both mentioned we were not familiar at all with this band, other than our misconceptions that we have since corrected. Um, when I was listening to this band, I also sampled their other albums very quickly just to get a taste I also sampled some bands that were mentioned with them. I found a pretty diverse categorization for what this band sounded like in terms of the bands that they got mentioned with. And um, Jay, I wonder if you found it hard. At first listen, you think, oh, this is a pretty easy band to pigeonhole. But did you find as you listened to this album more, it was a little bit harder to pin down what their sound was exactly and, and what bands they fit with? Or were you able to figure that out right away? There's definitely several bands uh, that come to mind as you listen to it. And I sense there's a bit of a struggle going on in this record in terms of them figuring out their identity. Um, There's a faction that you can hear that desperately wants to be heavy, you know, whether it's inspired by a helmet or, or, you know, or Soundgarden or some of the heavier stuff from from the 90s, the early 90s or not. I'm I'm guessing that's kind of where it was coming from. Uh, There's some helmet like riffs on this record mm-hmm. they have that that faction going on but within the same song i was hearing 
moments, several moments on several songs that were very reminiscent of all country, um, at least from a sort of songwriting standpoint and a vocal melody and approach to to guitar parts that was really interesting. Um, and then there was also a lot of, um, you know, tempo shifts and there's several songs on here that are, that are, I guess, in more of the balladed ballad territory. Um, just in terms of, I mean, they're still bombastic, but they are, um, you know, more halftime and, you know, big open chords and some semblance of a, of a ballad, I'd say. There's definitely a lot of different elements pushing and pulling on this, this record. Um, and there's times where I think it, it comes across being something pretty interesting and very melodic, memorable. And then there's other times where it gets kind of bland and very pedestrian. But even if you just look at the first song, like the first song, the first 40 seconds sound like vintage Soundgarden. The, the drum part, the, the guitar riff, everything. It's like locked together. It sounds like, you know, something off the first two Soundgarden records. After 40 seconds, the song totally changes, new riff, tempo changes, and it turns into like almost like an Everclear song or something, like just basic back and forth chords. gears and they show like they have this Jane's Addiction side to them where there's like wah-wah guitar and like layered vocal, like doubled vocal and uh, it's more tempo and like at this point I'm thinking I'm totally confused. I have no idea what this band is about. Um, and then as the, uh, like I said, as the album progresses you sort of get into these, these all country moments which it's a little bit of a stretch that might not be the best way to describe it but it's very Jeff Tweedy-ish vocal melodies and stuff that come through and that's when I think it for me it connects the most it, were, were you able to hear that or do you think I'm completely out of my mind Tim I, I heard more of the paw midwestern you know Kansas Oklahoma yeah, yeah, uh, yeah influence yeah. than say a Jeff Tweedy or a Wilco um, no I'm thinking more like Jeff Tweedy Uncle Tupelo like but, early, okay. Yeah, but even yeah, Paul's good too. You know, when Paul gets a little bit more rootsy sounding and less drop D ish, for sure, it's the same ballpark as stuff on here. Here, I had a pretty, and I know I I want to get Chips input on this, but because I know that this is a particularly um, beloved album for him, I had a pretty strong reaction to this in that I loved. I think. Uh, let's say seven tracks and I despised the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it was that on like seven of the songs, I heard there was this really cool tension between, and I think you mentioned it, Jay, there's like this bark market slash Dave Sardi, like aggressiveness that's going Mm -hmm. on. And then it's, it's halfway there. And then it's also, it's got this really concise uh, and, and tight, songwriting in the vein of like quicksand or seaweed on those songs where there's energy and there's aggressiveness countered with melody it really works and then on you know like one of the songs which is track seven it's this filler of a track with it just annoys the crap out of me um but there's a couple other songs and it tends to be the slower songs where it just didn't feel like the songs kind of really went anywhere uh, track yeah. nine is one you mentioned Jane's Addiction. And I think Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers are two song, two bands, and it makes sense having this band move out to L.A. and maybe taking those bands in in the early '90s. 
if you listen to track nine, it almost sounds like it, it's like a slow song, and then it goes into double time, and it sounds yeah. like it sounds like Higher Ground by uh, the cover, the yeah. uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers cover of uh, Stevie yeah. Wonder. I just yeah. found that they they got really generic on the on the slow stuff, whereas, you know, like, uh, Slipside melting the the single, which was also on the Crow soundtrack. You know, there's a really there's cool guitar riff in that song, and then they do a really nice job of breaking into halftime at about two and a half minutes into the song, and it gets really melodic, like almost the most melodic of anything on the album is this breakdown, and it gets kind of trippy. And you mentioned the wah wah and stuff. Uh, I really like that. It was a nice change of of pace from what the rest of the song was unfortunately there's like an, a minute of extra stuff at the end of the song the song is almost yeah. six minutes long and it could have easily been four that would be my only other complaint is that this song is over an hour or this this album is over an hour i don't feel like it needs to be i kind of feel like we're heading back into triple fast action territory with that criticism but it felt like a lot of the songs just went on a little bit too long and i found myself especially get to the last track it's 13 minutes and that last track is actually really cool. It kind of it has this riff that comes in about thirty seconds into the song. It's really reminiscent of early, early Soundgarden and Grunt Truck. Just heavy, drop D, yeah. dirty, grungy sounding. And then the song goes on for another thirteen minutes. Yeah. I, I I wish that they had, you know, I don't know who they worked with in the studio in terms of a producer, but I wish that they had had somebody to rein in some of the some of these tendencies to like because it could have been a really tight. Like you mentioned, helmet. Like helmet tended to stick to three and four minute long songs, um, especially on the on the meantime album. And this and that yeah. this could have been there. I, I don't know when they do the heavy riff stuff. They don't do it well enough to to keep my attention. What they do really well is actually when they get more melodic. You know, I, at least for me. I, and then they kind of get you know they they let the guitars kind of go off the rails more, and they have more bombast, but they're still like this. Um, just strong sense of melody, you know. I think when they get too wrapped up in trying to write, you know, killer metal riffs, they're okay, but they just they either don't know where to go with them or they end up being parts onto other songs or, you know, they just can't quite deliver them with the same proficiency that, like, a quicksand can, you know, who are just amazing musicians. So they have mm-hmm. all this, you know, they're very intricate in terms of, you know, the, all the different parts and the skill level of everybody. And they don't quite have that. So for me, when the, when those parts of the album happen, I, I sort of get bored. Uh, I was more into like something like, you know, track four or six, you know, uh, track Hoffman, where it's, you know, it, it, it borders on Goo Goo Dolls more than it does Helmet, you know. And, and yeah, just to me, because they approach that with just a little bit more, with so much more edge than somebody like the Goo Goo Dolls would that, you know, to me, that's way more interesting.
All right, Chip, uh, you've been patiently sitting this one out for now, but we need to bring you off the bench. And um, <laughs> our, Jay and I have both kind of hit on different sides of what we like and dislike of this album. So tell us which one is right. All right, boys, it's Uncle Chip storytelling time. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to uh, cut me off when, when we've gone over the two-hour mark. Okay. Uh-oh. All right. Okay, so first of all, uh, Matt Hyde produced this record. Yeah. And they, they connected with him because they were fans of Porno Papyrus that he had produced. So there's your Jane's Addiction. A good call on that. Uh-huh. Yep. It's all starting to come together. It's like lost. Like all these pieces come together. <laughs> um, I love it when we when we hear stuff and then we confirm that it, that we're not nuts. Yes. Although you're, you're Jeff Tweedy. I have no idea where you heard that from. but <laughs> I'm telling right. you, man. All right. So before I get into it, um, in the Lost Elephant CD cover, there's a list of all the bands that they played with. And so maybe this will help because I heard a lot of the names that you mentioned and, and other bands of those, of those genres. So I'm going to uh, take a deep breath and read through these pretty quickly if I can. Uh, Fugazi, Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine, Clutch, Green Day, Stanford Prison Experiment, Dead Milkmen, The Tubes, Bay City Rollers, No Doubt, Fear Factory, Bad Brains, Mighty Mighty, Boss Tones, Bark Market, Molly Maguire, Prong, Supergrass, Down by Law, and Seaweed are all bands that they played shows with. I don't know that they toured with all those bands. Like I know the Tubes show um, was a was a CMJ showcase, and they were on the same label, so that's not really a, a tour per se. But, um, but yeah, they played with some of the more aggressive, heavier bands of that time period. And I love to hear you guys talk about it because I got into this record obviously when it came out, and so at that time I was listening to Quicksand, Paw, Helmet, and I just just discovered Swerve Driver. So as I kind of critically listened to it in the last week or so and also knowing the fact that the guys at least mike and miles love quicksand they love paw and they love swerve driver so like i can hear the swerve driver stuff in in Hmm. their music and in fact kind of a a side note to that i actually just saw on facebook today mike lewis commented that he's not able to use his swerve driver tickets for one of the shows coming up so he was asking if anybody wanted them so um still a swerve driver fan 15 20 years later so yeah i hear i hear I hear a combination of all those influences. The one other thing from this Lost Elephant CD cover that uh, that I think maybe can get to some of the points you guys were talking about as well is um, it was all written. Uh, there's there's one page that Mike kind of gave a, an overview of the band and everything, but he says, "See, everything that we did was a nightmare. We learned all the hard lessons of music in one evil year. Merge was the hardest record of my life, and overall, I think we were unhappy with how it turned out. So it, it, it could be that the guys, in fact, felt not very happy with it. I loved it. I don't know. <laughs> Chip, I think this is an excellent time to go to your interview with Miles. You know, I think what led to Mike thinking that was such a miserable experience was just, you know, kind of like the, the inmates had taken over the asylum, you know? Yeah. It was really cool that we were given so, so much freedom, but we really just needed, like, a stronger hold around us. And we needed people, you know, maybe that's where the label did mess up a little bit, is like, you know, they could have flexed their power. And they let us do it, you know, and 
And I remember after that record, I remember I, me- I remember our accountant who loved the earlier version of that song saying, man, you guys really messed up by not putting the EP version of that record on your full-length record because we, we did it on an EP in a kind of a more popular way, you know? Yeah, I have that. Um, I need to go back and I haven't listened to that in a long time. I'll have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, so that's one of those kind of weird things where you're just kind of like, man, like, why didn't somebody just come in there and say, hey, uh, we're not going to pay your rent anymore. <laughs> you guys don't, like, give us something to work with, you know? And that's, again, another long-winded explanation to trying to explain a Mike Lewis comment. But, um, you know, Mike Lewis is one of the most passionate people you'll ever meet. You know, he's in Ethiopia, as we speak, adopting a child. You know, it's like the guy has passion just, just oozing out of his pores, you know, and so I think to him, for him, that was like, we kind of thought that that whole dream of moving from Oklahoma, getting a record deal, was going to at least end up like Mud Honey or something like that, where we could like, you know, put out some records for about 10 years and tour and play to maybe five or 600 people a night and have a career, you know? Right. Um, and it only lasted a little while, you know, <laughs> and imploded, you know? It hit everything. It was a mix of everything I was listening to. So there, to me, there was kind of post-hardcore sounds. There were shoegaze sounds. There was grunge. There was some straight-up rock. There was even some guitars bordering on metal. There was just a little bit of punk. So like I said, for me, like when I heard this, it, it, it was like the melting pot of, of everything I was listening to at the time. I need to mention that you have on your website, which is AtomicNed.com, a video for the song Soft Hand. And I think if people go there and watch the video, they will get a very good idea of, well, I mean, I, I think that they are representative of what a lot of bands looked like and sounded like at that time. They were coming out of, like you said, like post-hardcore, post-punk with shoegaze and metal influences. Um, I also want to mention that I, something that I discovered, they released a single for Soft Hand. And do you know what the B-side was? Yes. I know. What? Tell yes, us. Let's hear it. Wasn't it Rocket Ride by Ace Fraley? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. Wow. I want to hear that. Yeah. That would kind of make sense. He kind of sings a little bit at times like Ace Fraley. Which is not someone huh. you hear a lot of people emulating in terms of vocal. Uh... <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> He's influenced a couple people, I think. Hey, now, so, I know. So I have, Foo Fighters I have... covered him, too. I have the single. I have that single, and um, mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at it right now, and it says uh, featuring Ace Frehley on lead guitar and vocals. Oh, uh, okay. So they must have gotten him in into the studio to record with them, apparently. That was a good. That was a great one. You know, like me and our drummer Aaron Preston were big Kiss fans, and Mike Lewis. They had no idea what Kiss was. He was so confused by Kiss because he just didn't grow up with that band, you know. And so, I mean, he of course he knew what Kiss was, but he just wasn't. He didn't have the the sentimentality, sentiment, sentimental attraction to it, right? And right. Uh, we were at Atlantic Records. We were doing some interviews for like, uh, for I, I think there was some like metal magazines, honestly. And the girl, there's a girl there from, she's from, she was from Hit Parader or Circus or one of those kind of like metal magazines that were on their last leg, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of just walk from interview to interview. Like there'd be like kind of like a, a line of people and you would just kind of split up and do these kind of tag team interviews and stuff. And I was sitting there with Brian and this girl and she was doing this interview and we're talking and, we were just saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do this little EP. And for the second single, it was a song called Soft Hand. And yeah, we're going to add some cover songs to it. And she's like, oh, cool, that's interesting. And she, you know, she's right taking notes. And she's like, you know, who's, who's going to 
Well, so you're going to, well, I mean, what songs are you doing? We're like, well, we're thinking about doing, our drummer and I really want to do a Kiss song, you know? She, she was just kind of like, oh, cool. Uh, what song? I'm like, oh, this Ace Frilly song. It was on uh, this live, too, called, you know, Rocket Ride. She's like, Ace Frilly's drummer is staying at my house right now because they're in town doing some shows. And I was like, oh, really? That's cool. And all of a sudden, I kind of look over at Brian, our manager. I'm like, wait a minute. Ace Frilly's in town? He's like, yeah, I go, we're going to be tracking like in a couple of days. And so we said, well, do you think there's any way that we could get in contact with Ace, you know? And she's like, well, sure, totally. I'll, I'll ask the drummer and you know, blah, blah, blah. So one thing led to another, and Brian made the call. And, man, Ace really is like, where do I need to be? And so we're down at this little studio in El Segundo, which is right across the street from my studio now. You know, this big black limo pulls up, and there's, you know, six foot three or whatever Ace Ace is, you know. Yeah. Gets out of the car with his leather jacket and, you know, walks up into this crappy little studio in El Segundo. And, you know, of course, you know, the word got out from other people that worked at the studio. So there's kind of like a little bit of a scene in the kitchen area, you know, and everyone's like shaking hands, you know. And we came in and we had tracks that we, you know, I don't know if you compared it to the original, but it's different, you know. Of course, we had to kind of make it like a four and Lisa thing and kind of break it down and try to make it a little heavier and try to kind of made the riff a little bit more, try to make it maybe a little bit more like a sound garden thing or something, you know, and, and so, you know, I remember he came in and sat down and he was just like, oh, wow, you know, he changed the song, you know, and I, I wish I could do an East for the impersonation. Our drummer could do a great one. So he kind of has like this kind of high, squeaky kind of New York accent, you know, and he was just kind of like, oh, so we brought him in to just do guitar solo and sing, you know, so I remember Mike, he was like, oh, you guys kind of changed the melody a little bit. So I just remember like just being in heaven watching Mike Lewis in there like they had two microphones set up and Mike was kind of just like showing him the parts and singing along with them. And, you know, I was just, we were taking pictures and all this kind of stuff. And, and then he sat down and he brought his Les Paul. He, he pulls out this Les Paul, has like the, you know, typical like Ace Frehley looking Les Paul, like the three pickups, the three humbuckers, you know, and he sits down, he's playing through my amp and we're, t- you know, so we had a video camera out. Our friend Terry Poole was a roadie at the time. He was a big Kiss fan, so he and I were just geeking out on the fact that he really was playing through my amp. And so he, Terry had this video camera out. He was videoing, and often the manager, oh, yeah, he had his manager and his girlfriend was an ace fit. And the manager was like, I'm sorry, no video taken allowed. And we're like, <laughs> oh, bummer. You know, I, so I looked at Terry, and I said, just put it down, but don't turn it off. You know, Mike Lewis had this really great camera at the time. It was way ahead of it. I mean, it was, you know, like a really nice camera. And it had like a really nice stereo condenser microphone on it. And so whenever it kind of picked up quiet stuff, it kind of, you know, just had a, had a compressor on it. So it was a digital tape, like a video camera. And so Terry just sat it down. And so I have this tape still. It's just amazing. I played it for people. It's probably 45 minutes of Ace really doing guitar solos, just solo after solo. And then him being like, and me, me in the background going, that was awesome. That was so good. <laughs> and he's like, no, let me do another one. And he would rip off another solo, and I'd be like, that was the one. And he'd be like, no, let me do another one. And this kept going on and on and on. Like, and, and he would be like, you know, back in Kiss, you know, like I would do like five or ten solos, and the, I would leave, and the producer would just edit them together. We only had one track left for a solo, right? Yeah. So he had to get it right you know, all the way through, you know. And he was just, So he was kind of freaked out by the fact that he, we couldn't, like, kind of edit one together for him, you know, and it was just an awesome day. He hung out all afternoon, signed autographs. We took photos. And I remember just like driving home that night. And just, it was like, you know, one in the morning. I was just like, I can hardly wait for the sun to come up so I can call my dad and come.
information super driveways on spotify so i recommend people check it out i think that one's way more focused that one definitely shows them i don't know if it was comfortable or what but uh definitely a heavier helmetish side on that album they kind of there was still kind of the the to me the shoegaze sound a little bit but um it was definitely way more way more heavy yeah and i i once from sampling i could definitely tell it, it i mean this sounds a lot like a lot of ideas that some of them are more indulged on than others when you have tracks you know you have two seven minute long tracks a six minute long track 13 minute long track the shortest song is 245 and there's nothing else that comes close to that um it, they definitely were not as concise as they would end up being but i think that they're they're also I don't know they're, they're playing with some more textures here like uh, swerve driver is interesting because you can kind of hear that in some of the guitar riffing you know yeah. in in some of the songs it's a it's one one guitar is just playing a straight chord and the other one is playing a, like a descending riff up and down or something like that and it's very reminiscent of uh, a lot of the stuff that goes on in swerve driver with the two guitars playing off of each other so let me ask you a question about track seven just a phase the one that, that you can't stand yes would it would it make any difference in your thinking if you knew that Mike Lewis um, has released at least one, if not a couple, poetry books? So, to me, I mean, so to me at, at that time, like I kind of feel like a, a lot of bands did that kind of middle of the record, spoken word, music mm-hmm. in the background kind of stuff. It's um, the equivalent yeah. of doing a skit on a rap record. Yeah, and yeah, and I don't know if it's filler <laughs> or, or what. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. But but I do. Th- it, I mean, you know, in, in in their defense, I think I think Mike is a, is a poet, and I don't know, but maybe this was an opportunity for him to kind of mix those two, mix his music with his poetry. And, and at the time, I heard it, it didn't bother me. And then since then, I mean, I, I saw him do a he did a tour, uh, a couple guys, a poetry reading tour, um, and they they were in Columbus. God, it was probably fifteen years ago. Um, where he just read from his book. So like I said, I do know that that's a passion of his. Now that's interesting because, uh, in reading some stuff about the band, I read some amazon.com reviews for this album and it got one negative review. And it was because they claim that this is a Christian rock record. Oh, uh, open, open the can of worms. Now we know that they were ended up putting the last album out on tooth and nail and, and, and Polar put out their albums on Tooth and Nail. And there's a strong uh, Christian connection with Tooth and Nail. Mike Lewis's poetry reading that I saw was at a church. Uh-oh. <laughs> Where were we? Were? I actually got into the lyrics, and I did find... I, I found references to, you know, like, God and Lord, but they were not in a very specific sense. I mean, it it was... In some cases, it was just, like someone who was just in pain and suffering just sort of you know releasing that and using god and lord in the way that you might do that if you were releasing some sort of anger or something not necessarily like there was no mentions of like what you would think of in terms of typical very christian uh, lyrics where there's direct references to jesus take the wheel yeah so- I can't believe I'm going to say this, but uh, get ready for your poll quote for this episode. Okay. It's for Love Not Lisa, a creed of the early 90s. Well, that, that, could, that could have been the angle, you know, now that you go back and think about it. Like, we could have been the first, like, openly, like, edgy Christian band, you know, because everything before them was very kind of saccharine. Like, all the Christian stuff was very safe, you know? Right. You know, the Christian bookstores, you know, it was always like, you know, buy this band if you like Nirvana. And you buy the, you know, I remember, I remember, a friend of mine playing this CD. He's like, hey, check this out. It sounds just like Nirvana. It was just so bad. It was like, like a really, 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 really bad version of like, I'm trying to think of right now. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, you know, it's not really slick and poppy. You're like, oh, that's nothing close to Nirvana, you know? Um, so yeah, maybe that could have been our angle. But, uh, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I, I, I've, with my Christian friends out here and all that, like, I always talk about how, you know, Mike and I had, you know, would, would sit there and, talk at late night and talk about how you know if you i mean the lyrics emerge as lots of references to god and jesus and kind of struggles and very kind of like what christian music is today for a lot of those kind of hard rock bands on tooth and nail and those types of bands which is you know they're just 
they're almost like spiritual, like hymns, like the old, like, you know, Negro spirituals, which were very, like, you know, crying out to God and, like, you know, man, this sucks and God help me kind of stuff. And not just, like, you know, you know, Jesus loves me, for I know because the Bible tells me so kind of lyrics. You know, these were, like, somebody crying out and asking for God's help type stuff. And that's a lot of that kind of stuff that's emerged. And so I think we kind of thought that we were going to walk a little bit more of that kind of Bono kind of U2 thing a little bit more once we got to LA we thought we were going to do that a little bit more and kind of you know kind of fly that kind of that Christian flag about halfway up the way U2 did you know right um and we just never really got there with it and I think you know part of that had to do with just you know LA kind of eating us up a little bit you know right eating away at our personal lives and stuff with girlfriends and wives and relationships there and friendships and people's best friends moving out, moving back. And you got to think about like what a big change it is to go from the Midwest to LA and also be 22 years old. And that whole transition from being 22 to like 25, 26, that whole, you know, those are big, those are big years in your life, you know? Right. And so, so yeah, the, the, the label, you know, the, yeah, the, it was never, ever, I don't think we ever talked about marketing it per se as like a, like a Christian band, you know, though it was talked about, you know, um, right. Mike would talk about growing up in church camp and, you know, so it was nothing we were afraid of, but it did, it did help in certain areas, you know, like I think certain kids caught on to that, you know, um, and kind of thought like, oh, it was, it was kind of a cool thing for them, you know. Um, right. So, so yeah, once I went to Tooth and Nail, they definitely, what, Puller went down that road and, and became part of the Christian, the underground indie Christian rock scene. And I saw them at uh, the Vineyard Church out in Dublin before, those of you in Ohio don't know what the Dublin, but Dublin has grown up into a, you know, a pretty nice community. Now, back then, it was, the, the Vineyard Church was the only thing out there. And it was uh, Puller and MXPX and... Probably like one or two other bands, and it was um, it was a daytime show. At the time, I was like what, like mid twenties, and I was probably ten years older than most of the people there. So they definitely were hitting an, a target audience of kids who were Christians who wanted to see a rock show and didn't care who was playing. It's an interesting world. I, I don't think yeah. that that I was really. Uh, it didn't really shift my opinion one way or the other. Listen, when I when I read that and then I went and I listened to the songs while reading the lyrics it didn't really have any impact on me in terms of whether I thought okay this is just a Christian band or whether you know that's that's emulating like you said they're not just trying to sound like a more popular band um, they definitely have their own sound they definitely I don't think that they came up with this with the intent of mimicking another band in order to sort of be the Christian version of that and like I said, I don't think I, I don't think it was. Uh, I, I didn't realize it until I heard about Polar. So, yeah, they weren't they weren't open. And, and of course, that was before the internet. And you know, yeah, maybe if the internet was around there, we would have we would have discovered that right off the bat. But well, my, uh, that was that would have been early on in terms of the the maturity of the Christian music, the rock Christian scene too. I mean, that's kind of become its own like little industry, like. Yeah, I mean, they have legitimate, successful, commercially successful artists. I mean, they're all within that bubble, but they have careers and they continue to make records and do well. And I think that was kind of, that would have been early on before that blew up or became viable. So, you know, had they, well, I mean, you can see Polar sort of went at least in that direction. They didn't, you know, they got on tooth and nail and probably sounds like they maybe 
played into that scene a little bit more and but that's not necessarily then, a bad even thing then the, to do. even then the polar record the polar records even then were not they were not in your face christian rock i mean it was the same thing as for love not lisa um other than the christian label was distributing them and based on the fact that like you you guys both said that you had never really heard or didn't know much about for love not lisa um yeah. like i said i discovered that whole tooth and nail connection that that audience they have a built-in audience they're kids who whose parents maybe only allow them to listen to christian rock bands yeah. and so these these bands toured years and years and years in christian youth centers and and could i mean and i experienced this kind of firsthand when i tried to a book um as a favor actually to <laughs> to mike lewis um helped him book a band in columbus on super bowl sunday during a hailstorm <laughs> and so as you might imagine like two people showed up to that show and, and uh the band who i won't name confronted me out in the parking lot wanting me to pay their guarantee and i told him i was like you know i'm just doing somebody a favor super bowl sunday it's hailing i could have told you that we probably weren't going to get a lot of people and and they got in my face and told me that they they were used to playing in front of 500 kids every night having a hotel paid for getting meals and that this was the worst show that they'd experienced and this is a band that i had never heard of until i was contacted yeah. to, to help them get a show at, at bernie's so like i said I, th I think that i think that audience so being in polar probably was a, a benefit to these guys who couldn't find an audience in yeah. the you know in the in the global music world but could find one in a in a christian rock world sadly enough for one-offs you know there was a couple in there like green day that was like i think maybe two or three you know and um there was a cup like a like a two or three nights with like uh bad brains and bark market and some of these kind of shows like that but for the most part they were one-offs you know and uh it was just a bummer that was another really frustrating thing you know that you know and I, you know and i don't want to make this a big finger pointing thing but just another thing of like you know wow you know we probably you know we got signed based on our live show and everyone keeps telling us how good we are live but yet our our uh, booking agent had us playing all these metal shows and he also booked white zombie so he kind of had us in this mindset of like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna work this band like white zombie and have him play all the metal clubs and you know and as you said in your email uh you know probably one of the things that these guys have kind of probably heard in the record which is our fault too you know it's like hey, what is this band is it you know is it one minute it kind of sounds like Fugazi, and the next minute it's Smashing Pumpkins. Next next minute it's you know has elements of Sword Driver, you know the Rays record. Next minute it has like you know the Cure. You know like we're huge Cure fans and Soundgarden fans and like you know so I think our the booking agent and label too was just kind of like okay is this is this band need to be marketed like Soundgarden or is this band need to be marketed like the Cure? You know and yeah we always thought we were a little bit more artsy and like you know, indie, you know, being big Fugazi fans and stuff like that, then we, then everybody else thought we were. I think people heard that record and they thought, oh, this is supposed to be like, like Stones of a Pilots, like big, kind of like, like a, like a transition band, like, like, like Stones of a Pilots and Soundgarden were for all the metalheads, well, like me, you know, like I was a metalhead and when I heard Soundgarden, I was just like, oh, this is perfect for me. I get this, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think people kind of thought we were that kind of band, and we were thinking, oh no, 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 we're 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 artsier than that, you know. And so we were on these metal tours, playing these metal clubs, and I, I can't tell you how many times. And every time, man, when it, when some kid would start to say it, almost I felt like I needed to look, just like I wanted to just grab him and walk him away because Mike Lewis becomes so upset. But so many times, I mean, almost everywhere we played, we. <laughs> We'd be playing this show, and some like you know kids would show up, you know, with their Nirvana shirts on or their Smash Pippen shirts on, and you'd be like, "Hey man, we're big fans. Hey, hey, by the way, why are you guys playing here? Yeah, you know, why aren't you playing at the such and such down the street? You know, like, sort of, you know, basically, you know, you know, we we did play CBGBs, but you know, they'd be like, you know, you, know, you guys need to be playing CBGBs instead of like you know, metal Mike's metal club, you know? Right. And and we were always at metal mics instead of CBGBs and the rest of the country, you know, like it was just kind of like it was, it was odd, you know, and, and you know, and 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 Lewis, Mike Lewis was was not a was not even a metal fan, you know, so to him it was really hard for him to swallow, you know, like right. being in these kind of venues playing with those kind of bands, you know. It should be mentioned that 
I don't think Mike Lewis is doing Puller anymore. He's got his own website now called Zambui that sells t-shirts and merchandise and stuff like that. And it's sort of integrated with band videos and interviews. Yeah, I should have um, tossed this out during History of the Band, too, but Mike actually left. For a while, he left Tooth and Nail in the early 2000s, I think, and put out um, he put out a solo record, and he started his own label called Six by Six. He put out the Sequoia record by Miles. He put out a hip-hop band. He put out a shoegazing band. And a little glimpse behind the curtain, he even offered me a job at Six by Six, but I wasn't really ready to move to Oklahoma for that job. Mm. But yeah, so he tried to do... Mike's got a ton of ideas. He always has. After the six by six thing didn't work out, he uh, he he started a website called um, I think it was called College U. And it was the early days of the internet, and the idea was um, you have a kind of a, a a hub website that has all this college material, like, like a college newspaper, but for all colleges. And then each college had like their own page. So if you went to Ohio State, you could visit the Ohio State version of page off of college you or i don't know if it was called college or what it was called but um yeah. was it called harvard connect are you saying he invented facebook yeah is that what you're trying to say <laughs> i am not and and you know like i said mike is full of, of, of ideas and a lot of them good ideas just i think he was a little bit before his time and they couldn't get the funding and it, um that didn't work out he offered me a job with that company too <laughs> but wow. uh you yeah. were in demand i was what were you gonna it's say interesting there? though just the whole christian angle that's something that hasn't come up on the show uh yet and i think the what chip just kind of talked about that built-in sort of audience there's a lot of bands that sort of touch that i mean that's where i first heard you may not realize you know yeah i got, I got the, well, the lion ep in the, in the same package that i got the full polar album and pedro the lion has become pretty big I'm looking at the mm-hmm. current list, current, uh, roster list on Tooth and Nail, and Abandoned Pools is one of the first bands on the list. Which, I, what? I, I like their first out, first couple albums. I didn't know they were still together, and I had no idea that they were Christian and/or on Tooth and Nail. Yeah. Um, another band I, I've been listening to on Spotify recently, Icon for Hire, which is sort of a Paramore sounding kind of band. They're on Tooth and Nail, apparently. Uh, I didn't know MXPX was. Maybe I'm the last person in the world that didn't know that. But you there's a bunch of bands. Are, like, no, I know who they are. I just didn't know that they were a Christian band either. Well, I, work in the, I work in the corporate world. So, um, like I said, I got on mailing list. I got, because I reviewed and interviewed Polar for my old site, I got on a ton of Christian label mailing lists. And I got a, a, a lot of really good music. Yeah. Well, I, I love uh, a band from Columbus, uh, House... House, it House, House of Heroes? Heroes? Yeah. Um, and what, what was their name before that? Do you remember, Tim? No Tag Backs. Yeah. Yep. I mean, but all the stuff that they've ever put out is it's amazing. And like, you know, years ago when, when we were playing shows and, you know, we'd see them and, you know, cross paths and stuff. I mean, they were like 17 or 18 year old kids and they were just incredible musicians. And they, like you just, like you were talking about, Chip, they'd go out on these tour these youth centers and stuff and play to you know hundreds of kids a night and nobody had you know outside of that little bubble nobody had any idea who this band was despite like writing incredibly hooky songs being super talented and playing to hundreds of kids every night like outside of that they nobody had any idea they existed (laughs) it's really it's just a really strange sort of dichotomy that goes on with that all right let's get into what we would um, rate this album. Uh, we like to put it on the scale of worthy album, better EP, or decent single. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Chip is going to give us the worthy album. Uh, One of my favorite records ever, so I would absolutely say it's a worthy album. Okay, Jay, what about you? Well, I'm looking at my notes here, and I've got one, two, three, five songs marked as I really liked them. Um, I think I could add maybe one or two more to that, but that really leaves just about half the album that I really didn't care for that much. So I would say that that warrants a, an EP, right? Yeah. Five or six songs. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping I could get to nine, but I don't think that's going to happen. See, I, I, I made it to seven, but if you do some trimming on the last song, I would include that, and then that would make it eight, and I think that makes an album. At least in Rush, Van Halen. 
territory. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm down. So I, I would say that there it's a worthy album. I think there's a couple songs that would skip, but I think overall there's so much to listen and re-listen to that it's worth it. The other thing I want to ask you guys is, are there bands today uh, that you think that this band that people would appeal would appeal to if they were listening to say uh, a band that I heard through Spotify was oddly connected to this band. This band called Torch. You guys heard Torch? Yep. Yeah. Heavy metal for people who don't like heavy metals. What I've heard them described. Uh, <laughs> I love Torch, but how are they connected to this band? They were they were one of the related artists on Spotify, which I found weird. But I was like, it's weird. Sam- yeah. But I, I can, sampled I, some I, stuff. I can understand. I mean, because I. I I think, like I said, for love not least appealed to uh, uh, at least to me as a metal fan, as a shoegaze fan, as a post-hardcore fan, as a punk fan, as a grunge fan. So I don't and and with Torch being called a heavy metal band for people who don't like heavy metal, like I can I can see I can see that. I think definitely the second record way more than Merge though. Jay, uh, I struggle to find really contemporary bands you know all the bands i'm coming up with are are of the 90s or late 90s um you know being i wrote down a couple times that we didn't mention yet was uh girls against boys it was a band that um i thought was at times like this uh with the guitar sounds and sort of the, the vocal i had i wrote down track five sounds almost exactly like a fugazi song um, yeah so and their second kind of show ever was yeah, their second show was ever was with Fugazi, so that's definitely an influence. Yeah, I mean, I heard some other '90s bands like Orange Nine Millimeter and Love Battery, and even Smashing Pumpkins to a certain degree. That first, the first Smashing Pumpkins album, not the more produced Siamese Dream and, and Melancholy, but more like Gish. Some of the stuff on there in terms of the guitar work. Yeah, and the stuff that t- to me like Lucifer for now and. Uh, uh, What's track four called? Daring, uh, daring to pick, to pick up. up. That's the kind of stuff that I really like, and I, that one of the reasons I like it is because I struggle with. I can't really tell you who exactly that sounds like. I hear a bunch of different bands, but I can't say, you know, like the song that sounds like Fugazi. I can't do that with those songs. So, uh, the stuff that I was really drawn to, I think it's uh, it's a little bit more timeless too. I, I think the stuff I was not, not that into, it sounds very nineties ish. You know, it sounds very of the time, and the, and the other stuff it sounds a little bit more transcendent. So, if I can throw out one more that. itch, um, yes. If you go to atomicned.com and do a search for "For Love Not Lisa," I see that when I did this interview, 2008, I kind of did what what you guys are doing with this podcast. I did a uh, favorite CDs revisited feature, mm-hmm. and I um and I did an email interview with uh, three of the four guys in the band about Information Super Driveway, and I asked them about each song and asked them to talk about the recording and all that kind of stuff. So look it up. We didn't steal this idea from you if that's what you're trying to infer. <laughs> I, well, you know, not at all. In fact, I did, I did one. It was supposed to be a regular feature. I did it one time. This empire could have been yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this empire. All right. Well, I think we have covered Merge and uh, by for Love Not Lisa. We need to thank Chip for coming on the show this evening and interviewing miles from for love not lisa if you want to hear more of chip's interview we'll be posting a bonus episode later this week with the outtakes from that interview so be sure to check your feed in itunes or stitcher and you can visit him at atomicned.com as well as his other endeavor the lipstick and leather tumbler is that correct chip that's it so, highly... so that's my other idea. So that's 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 the one that Jay and I are going to turn into a podcast. Yes, it'll be Dig Me Out presents lipstick and leather. Yes, I'll, I will happily it... record that for you guys, and you can just uh, all you have to do is show up for a half hour a week and whatever you're going to cover. Sold, done. Get Gary Sunshine on and uh, talk no, some no, no, life, no. sex, and death. Gary Sunshine is he's going to be on this show. Oh, okay. I'm trying to get Tim to book. Uh, I'm trying to get Tim to review a Circus Power record. 
Oh, Circus of Power, not Life, Sex, and Death. I get those two confused for some reason. We're doing it back-to-back. Circus of Power and Life, Sex, and Death. How? We're stealing uh, We're stealing Chip's Thunder. <laughs> oh, don't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to barge my way into those. Don't worry. Oh, don't. Yeah, you will be. <laughs> um, if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. If you're planning on leave us, leaving us negative feedback, don't. We can't take it. We have very fragile egos. It would hurt us immensely. I think that's it. We are out. Chip, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Jay, good speaking with you again, sir. Yes, yes. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.